Kaepernick steps up and try and run to pick it up. He's got a touchdown. Welcome to Sports Talk in the place you will least expect it here on the campus of Vassar College. It's a beautiful, slow, sunny Sunday afternoon here at Vassar, and I'm back with my two favorite professors, Justin Patch from the Media Studies Department and the Music Department. How are you? I'm good. And to my left, I got Professor Alex Kuffer from the Film Department and the Media Studies Department as well. How's it going? Media Studies program. Oh, no, the program. (laughs) (laughs) You can't keep intensive programs, fields of study. We Nobody can keep any of these things straight. No. You are listening to Liberal Arts Sports Talk here, and um, I think we're going to kind of just jump right into it um, off of a piece from our last conversation. Um, We kind of spoke in the wake of Kobe Bryant's plane crash and uh, gave our initial reactions and feelings, and I think um, towards the end that opened up a very interesting conversation about kind of the narratization of his life and how his post-retirement uh, career really impacted the moment and how we reacted to him, you know, on social media and in that kind of emotional intensity state. So um, I think this would be kind of a good chance to discuss, you know, post-retirement careers in general of famous athletes. We've had a series of kind of um, well-known athletes uh, moving into the post-retirement world and doing really interesting things that kind of speak volumes to their public images and also um, to their larger careers and the scope of it. And so let's talk maybe about different athletes and kind of how they have navigated that post-retirement time. And I think an interesting place to start going off the conversation we were just having outside is athletes, famous athletes that decide to become coaches and um, the times where that has really worked out or that really hasn't. So I'll throw it over to you guys to kind of, you know, maybe throw out some names and talk about some athletes who have become coaches and kind of what that model looks like. So I think there's a lot to discuss there, and I think it's interesting sort of the difficulty that famous athletes have had in becoming head coaches in particular, managers, and sort of sticking with it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind for me is Patrick Ewing, who for a long time wanted to be a head coach in the NBA and couldn't get that chance. He's now, I think, still currently at Georgetown, right, where he's yeah. the head coach of his alma mater. And it's been working out well in college sports, where you have sort of these well-known famous athletes becoming coaches, Less so, it seems like, in the NBA, NFL, and MLB. So I think there's some really interesting sort of stuff to break down there. Like, why has it been so difficult? Why is it not translated? Well, yeah, it was the interesting thing is that, like, Ewing was, uh, you know, an assistant coach for years, very well respected. And I think as an index of the respect, he was very well paid. (laughs) So the people who had him on their bench as a coach knew his value. And yet that could not translate in a way that it did for, like, Ty Lue, who was a very, very well-respected assistant coach. In fact, he was the highest-paid assistant coach in the league before he became the head coach of the Cavs. But then after that, has struggled to get another head coaching gig, even though people are discovering that coaching LeBron James is not as easy (laughs) as everybody thought it was. And so you do have people saying, oh, maybe Ty Lue 
actually could coach, <laughs> um, but not this team, not my team, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is it's complicated, right? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the other thing, too, that I think about with a guy who was a very mediocre player but has gone on to be an incredible head coach is John Harbaugh. Yeah. But the thing with Harbaugh, because he was a mediocre player, he wasn't given a head coaching job right away. Mm. He had to work his way up, and he started with the worst grind in the game, which is special teams. And um, I know Dominic, uh, Dominic Foxworth has said special teams, this, that's, that's the two hours a week that nobody wants to be at. <laughs> and if you can get, you know, uh, what is it? You have 11, maybe 15 guys who do special teams. If you can get those guys after they've done their reps with their other respective uh, assignments <laughs> to actually come and learn the the plays and get it down, you're doing something right. right? Yeah. I mean, that's the worst one, too, because the only time you pay attention to it at all is, is when the head coach is screaming at the special <laughs> teams coach after something goes terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah. So it's, I'd be really curious to know how many have actually made it to head coach starting out in special teams because it must be pretty rare. Yeah. Because you only get attention for really fucking up. Yeah, for doing for making mistakes yeah. rather than doing things well. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the bigger issues for guys who were, you know, all-star caliber like Ewing is that, like, the expectations are really high once you become mm. a head coach. And yeah. I think that, that that becomes something that owners who are, um, conservative by nature, they just don't want to do that. And when you see players who become coaches, oftentimes it's the safe choice Yeah, that becomes the coach, not somebody who, when you start pulling them apart, like, oh, okay. This is... But at the same point, then, like, having to fire somebody like Patrick Ewing becomes much more difficult. Yeah. Because he is such a well-known personality. Fan favorite, right. the whole bit. And you run the risk of your coach having more power than the owner or the GM because yeah. they become the face of the franchise, the public loves them, right? that kind of thing. Yeah, from the flip side, maybe let's um, unpack this dynamic a little bit more. Um, you guys both spoke to you know how more high-profile players um, kind of struggle to become head coaches in their post-retirement career, but we kind of have this running dynamic where you know the mediocre white guy player who spent you know 15 years <laughs> kind of navigating the role-player role on his team or being like the last guy off the bench and these guys you know they're kind of primed and picked to take on head coaching roles why do you think that type of profile of a player whether we're talking about you know someone like Luke Walton Steve Kerr I'm sure there's probably more names you could be thrown out there why do you think those guys um kind of have such a quick funnel into coaching after they retire I think part of it's sort of like these broader discourses, right, that sort of white athletes are scrappy, they work hard, mm-hmm. black athletes are tend to sort of just have this natural, quote-unquote, talent, right? And natural talent can't necessarily translate to the coaching profession. Now, these are sort of discourses that have been in place for decades and decades. Whether it's true or not doesn't really matter, but that's the first sort of association, right? Somebody like Craig Council, who's been a very successful manager with the Brewers for years, but it's been thought of, you know, he was a scrappy guy who would make do with very little natural talent. So, yeah. therefore, he'll be a great coach. And I think you see a lot of sort of baseball players coming up in that way, like Walt Weiss and these other ones who had talent, obviously. They're pro baseball players, but not the same type of talent that, you know, Albert Pujols or mm-hmm. Brian Howard, these guys tend to have. Yeah, I mean, there's also the other thing is that so much of being a manager is about managing the bench. Yeah. yeah. If you spend a lot of time on a bench, you know <laughs> Right, and there there is a point to where, 
if you're a manager, you have to understand how to keep the 14th guy. If you're if you're basketball, you have to learn how to keep the 11 to 14 guys motivated, just in case one of the one through eights or one through nines goes down, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is a point to where if you spent a lot of time on that end of the bench, right. you sort of understand. Yeah. The other thing that I think, of, uh, you know, obviously I agree with what Alex is talking about, about larger sports discourses. Um, but there, there also is a point in saying um, when you're the last guy in the bench, maybe you do a little more networking, yeah. <laughs> right? And that, I mean, look, the whole thing about Steve Kerr, right? How does Steve Kerr get the Warriors job? I used to play golf with the the dude who owns the Warriors, Mm. right? Network is so much of sort of like, oh, why did you hire Coach A, B, or C? Well, we got a good vibe from this guy. Yeah. Yeah. All right? And and I think the role of, like, the cheerleader in basketball, right? Every time someone sort of drains a three and jumping up and getting super hyped up, baseball, all you do is sit there and talk and scratch yourself. That's all you do. (laughs) So if you get to talk to the bench managers and, you know, these coaches like that, you understand you're able to pick their brain and then sort of translate that into something else. I think you're absolutely right. Sort of just the talking endlessly and networking. Yeah, and, you, and then coaches are like, oh, I feel like I mentored this guy because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he didn't get in a lot of games, but we spent a lot of time talking right. and you get the good feeling from them where the guys who are your one through eights, they're out on the floor. And when they yeah. get off the floor, you know, you show them a couple of things and then you let them sit and sort of chill yeah. Take, take a breather for three or four minutes before they go back out. Guys at the end of the bench, they're getting a lot of face time with the assistant coaches. Yeah. Mm. You're able to talk like a coach as well, right? So mm. in an interview, they'll ask what you're going to do, and you sort of explain your plan, you explain how you run a game, exactly like the current coaches do. So you have this sort of like fundamental conservatism that you're not going to change the approach of the coach. Yeah. You're sort of replicating it to mm-hmm. a very large extent. And the cycle just keeps going of kind, kind of, of that yeah. passed on knowledge between people. Right. There's some difference. Obviously, they're different people. They have different staffs. But they're able to talk like a coach, sound like a coach, give interviews like a coach. Mm-hmm. All of this sort of training that they have where, you know, Kawhi Leonard is in the game. So he's not yeah. going to learn how to be a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may also serve big be a big reason yeah totally um so you know we do see a fair share of um athletes some notable or not or somewhat notable i guess <laughs> kind of transition to the coaching um but also there are other kind of common you know post-retirement directions the, that uh, players go in um i think maybe we could you know break down a couple of them and players you've seen kind of navigate that uh successfully or unsuccessfully we could talk you know about being a general manager or being a TV personality. You know, I'm, I'm feel free to kind of just throw out a name and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get talking. Uh, all right, so let's speculate for a second sure. here. Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> like yeah. we we have seen Marshawn Lynch change himself completely. I mean, he he willingly went to the microphone, which is something that we never thought we'd ever see with Marshawn Lynch, and stayed there for like, but two and a half. Absolutely yeah. glorious minutes, right? <laughs> right. We've seen him on TV be absolutely hilarious. Yeah. Right. He the interview at sixty minutes yeah. was an absolute revelation. Where we're like, oh, he actually like says stuff. This is amazing. Yeah, the right? Documentary. Yeah, like the documentary he, is amazing. And so, like, all right, so Marshawn Lynch has shown that he has all of these other skills. So where do we see him say five years from now? So here's the problem with that. Like, I, I agree, he would be amazing on TV, but where does he go? You don't have a place like the TNT inside the NBA where you can get, you know, zany people like Shaq and Barkley <laughs> together. And they have, like, brilliant insights with all kind of this other nonsense. Where do you have that with the NFL? You have, like, these morning shows where it's, like, five 
there's six former athletes, but it's still very serious. Yeah. Like, who's the zaniest? You know, oh, it's oh, Shannon Sharp. Shannon Sharp by yeah. far. Yeah, I guess. But, like, it's so contained. Mm-hmm. I, do, I would. I would pay so I much agree. money yeah. just one day a week. Be like, okay, Skip, you can take the day off. Yeah, we're bringing in Marshawn Lynch and Marshawn and Shannon are gonna talk for an hour. Like, I would, oh, I would buy a TV and subscribe to cable if that were gonna happen. Absolutely. But I think Shannon Trepp no longer does like pregame shows, right? No, he no, just they, does the talking head. Yeah, what's what his name? What's the undefeated? Bayless. Yeah, yeah, yeah Skip Bayless. Bayless. What is, is it, it called? I think it's pretty clear though, just based on you know the conservatism of the NFL, like. Someone like the NBA, like they're happy to put Shaq and Barkley, you know, that that mm-hmm. team of people on the air. You kind of these NFL shows, you have like, you know, like the white guys you know, in the pampered suits, and you right. know, like you watch the halftime of, you know, the Super Bowl. Who's on that? Like Jimmy Jones and Jimmy uh, Johnson, yeah. who's Strahan, who again, it's like Strahan's great. The, yeah, yeah he's great, but again, he's like the host of Good Morning America. Yeah, he's not going to do anything too crazy. Yeah, um, Tony Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. I forget the other ones. Yeah. Oh, Terry Bradshaw. But it's totally but like, uh, it's it's tailored, right? Like right. they're not letting these guys, you know, really be themselves fully on television. Right. Oh, you know what I would pay to see? <laughs> Randy Moss, Shannon Sharp, uh, Marshawn Lynch, <laughs> and who would I put fourth guy in there? Rob Gronkowski. Oh my God, <laughs> that that would be doing TV now too. Yeah, yeah. No, that would be amazing. And and the, the problem with that is, I think it would put everything else. Just out in the cold. <laughs> yeah. I think if you put those four guys on TV, basically everybody who watches the NFL just would switch watch over. that because that would be glorious. I don't think it'll happen because they they're not going <laughs> to take it too seriously, and that's what the NFL wants, like the gravitas of the NFL, right? Mm-hmm. Halftime analysis is the most important thing <laughs> in the universe, yeah. where nobody cares, but like they can't make it too entertaining because then you realize it's all just nonsense. Well, but I think that's the thing that people missed about. I think people still miss about John Madden. Yeah, is that Madden was a great uh, analyst, but never lost his sense of humor and his very human side. And I think that's what what actually drew people to the game was yeah. that sense of like this guy knows offensive line play inside out, knows all the plays, uses all the vocabulary in a way that's very understandable, but is also fun and seems like the guy that you would want around the table at Thanksgiving because right. he <laughs> seems like a fun guy. Yeah. Yeah, versus, you know, a guy like Joe Buck or, you know, Gus Johnson, yeah. who drives people crazy because every single pass yeah. is like the end of the universe, mm-hmm. where there's, there isn't sort of reflection like it's a Sunday afternoon game. It could be bad. They happen all the time. It's okay. So you don't have that. Where the NBA, they're so good at sort of understanding this stuff. Yeah, so it sounds like we should make uh, Justin Patch a TV executive tomorrow. If you're ever looking to change career paths, yeah, I guess. You'd be you know doing something different. <laughs> oh, man, I, I totally want to see Marshawn Lynch back on TV. <laughs> so um, I think something that's also interesting is, you know, the guys, you know, that are on the verge of retirement and how they kind of carefully frame their so-called retirement tour or their farewell season is something we've seen, you know, very vividly captured by different athletes in recent years. Look at how, you know, Mariano Rivera kind of went out in his last season or, you know, Mm -hmm. Derek Jeter with his whole respect campaign or Dwayne Wade with his retirement tour. So I'm just interested from your perspective, what do you think about these kind of, you know, victory laps for famous athletes and are they good or bad for the sport and who do you think really deserves them? (laughs) I mean, my gut reaction is they're good for the sport, Mm -hmm. right? That that brings people to the game. It's one of the few times where... If it's, if it's a player like Kobe, like, people from the opposing team would be 100% okay with the Lakers winning because 
you want to see Kobe go out well, right? And I think that's one of these rare moments where opposing fans actually yeah. feel good about each other. So that's that's I think is it, it is a very positive thing. Um, and I, I thought you know Kobe's retirement tour fine. Dwayne Wade sort of an interesting character in that as a player he's very good, as a personality he's amazing. Yeah, right. People really feel this connection with Dwayne Wade because you know, and increasingly now you know, with, with his child and everything, he's put himself back out there in a way that's extremely vulnerable. And I think, like, there's very few other people that could have done that the way Dwayne Wade did. Yeah. And so D. Wade doing, a re- like, a retirement tour was sort of a... struck you as kind of odd until you realized how many people, like, sort of side pocket really liked and felt a, a very warmly towards Dwayne Wade. Yeah, it goes far... I mean, obviously very good player but it goes yeah. far beyond that oh, yeah. i think you're absolutely right because he sort of managed this stuff yeah. in a really interesting way i mean this sort of very open personality and now uh with his kid and things like that which is sort of really interesting being sort of this leader yeah um you know coming from chicago and things like that it's this really sort of interesting contrast um i, I think it's fun because again these guys are slowing down particularly in basketball right d wade yeah. had been slowing down for a number of years uh dirk who had his goodbye tour that same year mm-hmm. Same sort of thing. So it gives people sort of a reason to come out. It gives these players sort of a, an excuse to sort of play more in the game, right? Like Dirk was sort of a smaller part of the team, but because people were coming to see him, yeah. he got more court time, which is great because nobody really cares if the Mavericks win. <laughs> you want to see Dirk. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's sort of a fun thing for fans. And again, it goes to the fact that like we know these games aren't the most important thing. Winning is not the most important thing. We want to see these guys play one last time. Yeah. But the amount of strategic, you know, kind of influence that goes into them from their own perspective, like, you have someone like Dean Wade who decides, I'm going to have this grand retirement tour where I'm swapping jerseys with everyone I play against for a whole year, versus someone like Dirk Nowitzki who's announces the retirement kind of on the low and the middle of the season is like, all right, I'm going to go get ice cream next year. Like, the framing is totally, utterly different. Do you think that is, you know, very purposeful from both sides? Is that just kind of a reflection on how they want their own personality to be, you know, demonstrated and brought across? Yes. Um, I, I think so. Look, d still very much a public figure. He was, like, part of this all-star dunk contest yeah. nonsense. <laughs> where Dirk, has he kind of disappeared? A little bit, yeah. Right, and that's who he was. He was always sort of, you know, this quiet guy, unassuming guy. Um, so I, I think it's very much that they have the power to do this, right? Most players, they say, I'm going to have a, you know, goodbye tour. They're like, who the hell are you? You yeah. can't do that. There's that famous Ozzie Gian quote, right, where, like, good players uh, retire, like, bad players get cut. Right. <laughs> at the end. Yeah, I mean, at some point, you got to just be like... I can't do this anymore. My body won't hold up. I'm not happy anymore. This has got to be it. I think like, I think people were surprised like with Rob Gronkowski. Yeah. When yeah. he when he was very direct about why he quit and about how much pain it, it is to play football, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. he he put it out there. Yeah. yeah. Right? Luke, Luke Keekley did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the height of his career. Do football players have the retire- retirement tour? Though? I was thinking even somebody like Brett Favre, right, mm-hmm. who'd been around the league for 20 years, super loved. I don't think he ever sort of announced any of this. So it's really sort of telling, like, who gets to have that power. It's the baseball players and basketball players, and that's it. Yeah, Yeah. well, football, I think, one, there are too few games. And you can't put somebody in as a sentimental right. favorite on any play because, you know, that could be a disaster. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you, and there's so much strategy involved in the game of football with personnel that if you announce that you're retiring at the beginning right. of the season, man, it's... It's a bad look. Yeah. And it's also, too, like, if Brady announces one last year, something like Philip Rivers 
Um, it literally could end on one play. Yeah. Where realistically with D-Wade, right, he'll miss a dunk or something like yeah. that, but it's not going to sort of end his career like that. Or someone can throw Derek Jeter kind of a softball down the middle right. to get that, you know, final, like, right. mm-hmm. they respectful did that, hit. That didn't kinda... they do that with Barry Bonds in his yeah. last All-Star game? They, like, grooved him a fastball. Um, things like that, which you would never do in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a really sort of striking contrast yeah. there. Do you have any thoughts on maybe, you know, how Derek Jeter kind of ended his last season or, you know, kind of the framing around that? Because, honestly, I think that's the first time we really saw that I remember the retirement tour having that much impact on a fan base and kind of maybe paving the way for what Dwayne Wade had done um, in years following that. Maybe. Um, I have a very cynical take on Derek. Everything with Derek <laughs> Jeter. Yeah. Um, it was a Nike marketing campaign, mm-hmm. and that was it. Um, and I think it's meant to sort of boost his credentials and sort of his businessman status yeah. more so than anything um, and overlook the fact that he was a historically bad defender. Ooh. How do we feel <laughs> about Derek Jeter's post-baseball career? Yeah, with the, I mean, he's kind of fallen off the map a little bit besides the Players' Tribune initiative. Well, the, pl- I think the Players' yeah. Tribune was, was incredible. Right. I thought that was a stroke of genius. Yeah. But then him... Uh, like bumping out another better offer to buy the was it the Rays or the Marlins? The Marlins, Marlins. Yeah. A, a much better offer from a local businessman to buy the Marlins because right. they wanted Derek Jeter back in baseball. The Marlins are terrible. Yeah, it's not. It's like historically bad. Just the, this repeated tire fire. You're a Yankees fan, aren't you, man? Yeah. That's why you yeah. forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and like all these sort of PR disasters, he forced out like Andre Dawson and I think Tony Perez right mm-hmm. away. And just, like, really, really bad personnel decisions, giving away, like, Christian Yelich and uh, all these sort of great players, things like that. Just, it's awful. And that's a big part. And it doesn't come up, though, like, with the Hall of Fame stuff. You know, he got elected to the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. The discussion was, how is he not a unanimous selection? Nobody talks about, like, the Marlins, ongoing Marlins tire fire. Or how about, like, kind of how MJ has handled, you know, managing the Charlotte Hornets. Like, that's the two most high-profile athletes in their post-retirement career who have kind of, you know, had their glory during their playing careers and had gone into, you know, buying an actual team, I guess. Like, buying a team is the pinnacle of being, like, the all-star athlete, right? Like, look how powerful I am. Like, I'm no longer an athlete. I own this entire thing. And, you know, both those guys have kind of, you know, mismanaged the franchises they've been a part of. And I would say compare that to what we see with Ozzie Newsome. Mm. Right. I mean, how many All-Americans has he, I mean, not, not All-Americans, all pros, has he drafted in his career as the GM of that team? Yeah. Like, it's incredible, right? So you have a, a, an example of a guy who's a great player yeah. who became a great GM. And then you've got Michael Jordan, who was the best ever, like, you know, at at his sport, who is not a great manager. I mean, of a team that sort of has been. I think Bomani referred to it as witness protection the other day <laughs> because if you play for them, nobody knows who you are. Oh yeah, right. Um, so it goes to show you, just because you were a ball and athlete doesn't mean the business yeah. stuff comes to you. And it's funny because Jordan, in the other business world, is a monster. Yeah. Like, the shoe business, killing it. The clothing business, killing it. Uh, he probably owns some restaurants, some car dealerships we don't know anything about. <laughs> but the basketball business, man, not happening. It's interesting how many former athletes have been successful team owners. There's not many. Not very many. I was thinking Jerry Richardson of the Panthers used to be. He got, like, forced out because he was a gross creep. But <laughs> I don't know, have there been others? 
I don't think you make enough money as a player to own a team. I don't know. Has LeBron been talking about sort of owning a team? You have, like, figureheads sometimes, right? Like the Jay-Z thing where he owned a very tiny fraction. It's 5% that he was I think it was, like, less than 1%, but he became the figurehead. Uh, But in terms of sort of actual, like, control of a team, I don't know if... Not off the top of my head, but kind of the difference between, you know, Ozzy and MJ and Jeter, do you think it just comes down to an issue of incentive, like... Maybe MJ and G are into owning a team just because they want to own the team as a part of their legacy, and they're not actually have that pure commitment to you know being the manager, you know being on top of the things. Like maybe they want to play golf too much. It's hard to say, but you could certainly argue that ego plays a role. Like Newsom is an all-time great tight end. But that's nothing compared to, like, the stardom that MJ and Jeter had in his career. Yeah. So I think Newsom, you know, perhaps has had to work for a living. Yeah. And needs to sort of not get fired where, you know, the other two, they obviously don't need to work. Why are they doing this? Yeah. Presumably because of ego-driven reasons. Jeter doesn't need the money. Yeah. yeah. Although if you're Jeter and you went pro, he was 18, right? Like, he, that, yeah. like what else do you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a, I think that's a bad way to get into a career. Yeah. It's like you see a lot of people who are second generation X, Y, or Z, second generation doctors, lawyers, ministers, whatever. And they're there because that's what they knew. But the love sometimes is just for the for the profession, for the vocation, right. is not there. Yeah. And I sort of wonder that with Derek Jeter is like his love for baseball as a player, undeniable. Right. Maybe his love for the 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 business of the sport is just not the same, but mm. that's what he knows. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think, too, we've sort of really glamorized, like, the job of managerial and, and general managing, right? It becomes things – think of something like fantasy baseball, mm-hmm. where this idea that if I run a successful fantasy baseball team, I could run a successful real-life team. <laughs> it happens all the time. Like, baseball meetings, you have all these sort of fantasy heads and sabermetricians sort of going down there saying, let me run a team or let me sort of work for a team as well. So I think sort of, like, the reality doesn't quite match. Um, and somebody like Jeter could have gotten, you know, it could be a combination of factors why he's in a bit of trouble right now. Well, speaking of egos and maybe someone who's kind of put his ego a little bit to the side, Vince Carter, you know, not retired, but <laughs> the way he's half retired maybe with what he's doing right now, but the way he's kind of framed the last part of his career as kind of just renaissance man who just keeps on chugging and his athleticism never comes to an end. Like he could have, you know, gone to a championship team, chased a ring five years ago and then called the quits, which is something we see kind of a lot of guys with him, his similar status doing, but kind of the way he's, you know, gone to smaller markets, has remained a contributor, and has kind of just kept chugging along, like, that's a very interesting and intentional framing within itself, right? Yo, if, if Vince Carter, he's just at home waiting for Marshawn Lynch to call him up, and be like, <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah. man, you want to do a TV show? And then Vince would be like, all right, I'm hanging up the shoes tomorrow, let's do this. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, again, Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I would subscribe to that podcast. I would watch that show all day. Don't even give him topics. Just have him in a room for a half hour. Yeah, that would be awesome. It is an interesting choice. Somebody of like, you know, guaranteed Hall of Famer, sort of, you know, this great player, but somebody who hasn't tried to really solidify his legacy. And and I can't think of too many examples of that. And I don't think it's an issue of him just trying to hang on as long as possible. I think he is sort of, as you said, like making this somewhat intentional choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if too many others like that. I, You know, Vince Carter reminds me a little bit of a, just a slightly probably better version of Art Monk. Mm-hmm. And Monk was a receiver when I was a kid with, uh, with the Redskins. Yeah. We're still starting. He was like the number two with the Redskins when he was 36. 
And he always said, you know, the day I get cut is the day I get cut. But damn if I'm getting cut by somebody who, because I didn't work hard. Mm. And I, I get the feeling that, like, Vince Carter's the same way. Like, I get cut, I get cut. But it's it's going to be because somebody was genuinely better than me. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that Vince Carter is a guy who, in many ways, I would imagine, still feels like he has something left to prove. This guy who was kind of pinned on early in this career, you know, to be yeah. the next Michael Jordan, to be one of the greatest athletes of all time. The way he's extending his career out like this to testify just how impeccable of an athlete he is, that he can throw down windmill dunks in his 40s, that he can, you know, shoot the shit out of the ball from the half court, you know, score 25 points at Madison Square Garden when really he could be playing in his local YMCA league across <laughs> the street. Like, that is also very intentional, and I think, you know, it's interesting how we haven't really seen other athletes kind of take that route before. Well, I, I think Vince has probably been liberated. Like, you're not going to be Jordan. You're not going to get six championships. Mm-hmm. You're never going to get one. But if... When that weight is off your shoulders, when all you have to be is a basketball player, maybe it's just so much more fun. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the, the thing about Vince is like his joy is very palpable. Like he always looks like he's having fun. He smiles a lot. He seems like he enjoys being with the guys on the bench, all that kind of stuff. And I wonder if the pressure to prove that you were the next Jordan when that was gone. Hmm the world just opened up. Yeah. yeah. I think you see it a lot with athletes, and it's this tough thing. All they've done is play sports from the time they were like five, and they've always been the best. And when their career comes to an end, it gets really tough. Brett mm-hmm. Favre actually sort of talked about this pretty openly, how tough it is to sort of, they just say, you're done. And he mm-hmm. says, no, I still, I'm not done. I have a lot to give. Because this is all he knows. And you think of people like Willie Mays on the mm-hmm. Mets, and yeah. Joe Namath with the Rams. And, like, how tough it is for these guys to sort of just let go. So the fact that he's kind of just saying, I'll play out my career and do what I can is really interesting and very unusual, I think. Particularly a guy who's, you know, a guaranteed Hall of Famer. You just Mm -hmm. don't see that ever. Yeah, and then you think about, like, Sugar Ray. And when Sugar Ray said he went through six years of severe depression, like, once boxing was gone, that was it. He had nothing else. Um, and then he was been very self-reflective about coming out of that and sort of redefining himself as a person outside of being a fighter. Are you talking about Sugar Ray Leonard? Yeah. Because I know Sugar Ray Robinson also had a problem. Like, his career yeah. just went on way too long. Mm-hmm. Where a guy who was considered, you know, the greatest pound-for-pound boxer yeah. of all time just hung around for way, way too and sort of just hammered his career. Well, Sugar Ray had the detached retina. Okay. Which ended his career right. rather suddenly. And then all of a sudden, like, what do you do? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And you just... You, you, you're not, your identity is taken from you. Right. Yeah. Um, and the sports, like, media cycle moves on so quickly that once these guys retire, you know, the great ones will come back for a Hall of Fame ceremony, and then they just sort of disappear. And the churn of it mm-hmm. is so fast that I, I think there's sort of this fear of just letting go and changing because they don't have much else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're forgotten about. So I think this question of legacy becomes really important to them. Yeah. Um, speaking of legacies, um, I think there's, you know, some guys, you know, that it is that problematic dynamic where, you know, we cycle through these figures super quickly and the fear of falling off. But you have someone I feel like we can't talk about post-retirement, you know, success stories without talking about Shaq, you know, and athletes who have, you know, become these larger life looming figures who have very much not fallen off the map, but maybe have even extended their influence in their post-retirement phase. And, you know, athletes have become actors, too, and also really interesting crowd. So I'm just interested in maybe, like, what you guys have to say about kind of how Shaq has 
gone to the has become this kind of omnipresent figure, you know, being on like Coca Cola bottles and you know Tiger Bomb commercials, and you know, obviously his show with TNT. Like, how do you think he has become such a success? You know, in his post retirement, and then my next question would be, you know, other athletes who have gone to acting or kind of you know self promotion. I think he's become such a success because he doesn't particularly give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, he'll sort of endorse anything. And, and TNT, he's more often the butt of the joke than not. Things like that. He, he's willing to do stuff. And he obviously has sort of throughout his career enjoyed being famous. Mm-hmm. Very much that's been sort of his thing. This joy in just being sort of recognized. Which is funny because he's, what, seven feet something tall? He's enormous. Right. <laughs> he can't hide. But he very much has always sort of enjoyed being a public figure and someone who never has taken himself too seriously. Yeah. I think yeah. that's one of the reasons why people liked him um athletes as actors goes way way back Mm -hmm. um and and you start having in the 1910s sort of you know baseball players like christy mathewson john mcgraw working in movies as well this was during their careers um and and you have sort of examples of this but what do you mean in terms of athletes becoming actors Uh, i was thinking someone about Shaq. you know like he kind of made this whole show of being the guy who loves being famous so much that he'll be in bad movies and no one cares right or someone like oj simpson right like after his retirement he suddenly had you know kind of a budding acting career before you know everything else happens right well well oj most of that story is similar to Shaq. yeah that he was very much someone who wanted to be famous Mm -hmm. that's what he really really wanted was fame, not just sort of athletic success, which he obviously had, but to sort of be famous. And this is why he would do things like those car commercials and appear in movies, you know, whether it's sort of disaster movies or things like The Naked Gun. He wanted to be a star. He wanted to be recognized. Well, I mean, Jim Brown. Right. That is the Jim Brown mold, right? right. And I think that, that uh, you know, um, LeBron James wanting to be an action hero when he retires yeah. is very much like the new Jim Brown. Wow. Right, because Jim Brown was the guy, the dirty dozen, right? right. That kind of Jim stuff. Jim retired early to work in yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you have this sort of long history of this sort of stuff. And, it, and again, but it goes back in class, we talk about the Jackie Robinson story, where mm-hmm. Jackie Robinson is starring in his own biopic mm-hmm. the year after he wins the NL MVP. So there's this long sort of interesting history and I don't know if you could just say Jackie wanted to be famous or mm-hmm. if you want to tell this larger story. Yeah, there uh, seems to be some interesting complexities here for absolutely. sure. Yeah, I mean, I think with Shaq, for me, is like, from what people have said, again, I don't know Shaq. Um, <laughs> oh, really? That he has a big personality. He's always been like that. Part of the reason why he was so beloved in Boston, even though by the time he got there, the back injuries and all that sort of taken their toll, is because he was such a fun public figure. Right. And I think that that him being who he has become on TV was part of an extension of that. Now, Herm Edwards, Herm is always (laughs) good for a soundbite. Right. And Herm Edwards said, like, the day you start your job as a pro athlete, you need to start planning for what you do in retirement. Mm -hmm. Right. And he said, the day that I signed my first NFL contract, I decided I wanted to be a coach so that I was working on that the whole time. And I kind of wonder, um, if Shaq was was hyper aware of that and actually worked throughout his career to get that ready hmm. um, in a way that he may not have been very public about it, right. but it certainly seemed like his transition into retirement was Seamless. abnormally smooth yeah. Yeah. by comparison. I right? wonder, I was thinking of Bill Walton as well. Mm-hmm. If you are a human being of that size, you literally <laughs> cannot hide, right? It's impossible <laughs> to do so. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you do? You just start to embrace it, and you start to embrace that you're such a public figure. You think like Yao Ming, right? Same sort of thing, mm -hmm. where he's become this really public figure in China. These like human beings who are just so huge, they just take it all in yeah. and become sort of zany and super lovable as well. And mm -hmm. I wonder if that's just part of this, their entire lives. Mm -hmm. They were sort of singled out for being so massive. Yeah. I mean, you have that trope of a guy like Taco Fall now, too, who's just like so big and large <laughs> right. that he suddenly becomes lovable. Well, mm -hmm. he's interesting because he does it like Brad Stevens has talked about him. Like he's so much more than like seven foot five, something like mm -hmm. that. And the slam dunk thing, Aaron Gordon wants to jump over him. And you can tell he's embarrassed. He doesn't like sort of the attention. Yeah. And he hasn't quite embraced it in the way that perhaps Shaq and Bill Walton have. It'll, it'll come with time. And he's so beloved. Yeah. So it's interesting to see sort of what will happen with him. Uh, but he doesn't quite seem to want to just be known for being tall. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. Well, maybe we got to get all these guys in a room, potentially. I, if there's a room big enough to fit all of them, <laughs> and they can just all talk it out. But, um, you know, going back to your point, JP, just talking about athletes kind of hyper-preparing for retirement while they're still playing, I don't think there's anyone who's been setting that precedent for the next generation more than someone like LeBron James, right? It's ever since his move to Hollywood, it's been very transparent exactly how he's prepping to, you know, begin his post-retirement career, even while he's still at kind of his, you know, towards the end of his athletic peak while still playing. What do you think about that? Well, the, th the thing about LeBron is, like, that first Nike contract guaranteed that he could actually have the luxury of thinking about that, hmm. right? Because once you, I mean, that, that first, was it $90 million or whatever from Nike? That pretty much guarantees that you're going to have money for the rest of your life. And so um, I would love to think that LeBron James is the mold, except that most guys over their pro careers will never make the equivalent of $90 million yeah. that he got when he was 18 years old. Right. But I do – I look at LeBron James uh, with a certain amount of respect for how he has planned for the future in terms mm -hmm. of like not only – investing and taking care of his family, but also looking at people around him with potential and saying, I see good things in you, but you need to go get an education first. Mm -hmm. So I'll send you to college. You're going to learn business and then you're going to come back and, and I'm going to give you a job. And then, you know, we're going to work this thing out together. And so I give him a lot of credit for putting a team around him of people who are savvy, well-educated, who are like in the right places to make those moves. Well, you hear, like, the horror stories of these athletes with the obscene amounts of money, people like Mike Tyson, who is being sort of robbed blind by his team. No, Alan Iverson, yeah. Mike Vick, well, like, the... Uh, Iverson was one that I was thinking of who sort of comes into the league with this huge contract from Nike, but they have to put in a trust because they don't sort of know how he'll use it, they don't trust him to sort of fully use this, and he doesn't have the people around him to sort of say, this is how you need to spend your money the first few years, this is how you need to save... For the future, and it's caused him sort of problems because he can't get to this money because they legally structured it. Yeah, this way. Totally. I mean, for every success story, you know, you hear about these kind of like nightmare scenarios of these athletes who just, you know, weren't ready for their careers to be over, no matter how great they were in the moment right. while they were well, playing. Well, you have uh, Billy Corbin did a thirty for thirty called "Broke," where mm -hmm. they profile yeah. athletes, particularly from NFL and basketball, who went broke, who lost their money because they're just not used to this. You give an eighteen-year-old kid a million dollars. And you say, here you go. What the hell are they going to do? Yeah. They don't think 10 years ahead. You mm -hmm. give you know a normal 18-year-old 50 bucks, they'll spend it right away. They don't know how to spend this money. And then it eventually sort of dries up very, very quickly. Well, and, and I thought there was another documentary that simply had to do with boxers. It was yeah. Tyson, Holyfield, and then who's the executioner? 
um, the guy from Red Hook. Red Hook? New Jersey. Um, Bernard Hopkins. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's the three of those guys. And Holyfield literally said, I was one of nine kids, single mother, grew up in a house with a dirt floor. And suddenly I had a million dollars in my <laughs> He was like, I, I, I had no idea what money was supposed to be used for, let alone this. So he was like, yeah, of course, I bought the biggest house. I had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I bought all these cars. Mike Tyson was like, you know, my man told me to buy an airplane, like all that kind of wow. stuff. And the only dude who actually came out of it well was Hopkins, right? And Hopkins, the day he retired, literally announced his retirement and signed a contract with Golden Boy as a promoter the same day. Mm. So of those three guys, he was the only guy who who managed to finish out his career, abnormally long career, 51 or something, and then have a job post-boxing, right? Tyson, both those guys have figured out a way to sort of rehabilitate their careers. But Tyson's still an exception in that regard. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think somebody like Floyd Mayweather, who gets like the highest paydays ever, <laughs> you know, $500 million. You see him, though, all the time, like, betting a million bucks on sports games or yeah. halftime, like, things like that. Like, how long does this sort of exist for? And it's because you have all these people, A, who are either just robbing him blind or <laughs> encouraging this type of behavior. And yeah. Tyson's sort of the case study of this. I mean, I think the interesting thing you have with boxing is the narrative around these guys is, you know, that, you know, they're kind of these, like, wild, out-of-control characters. And in that sense, like, their post-retirement career kind of becomes an extension of that story when they're not playing more. And, you know, that's, like, pretty deeply problematic when you're having, you know, you know black men fighting in a ring with a predominantly white audience and ownership. And then these guys kind of turned into these, you know, spectacles after their careers for, you know, for us to, you know, poke fun at in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Spike Lee sort of nailed this one on the head. He was like, look, wealthy people don't box. He was like, if you look at the history of boxing, it's always the people on the bottom of the barrel, whether it's Jewish fighters, Irish fighters, Italian fighters. It's always the poorest people because who who the hell else is going to do this? Like, who else is going to do this to themselves, right? Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the story with boxers is most of them are fighting their way out of poverty. Look at Mm. Manny Pacquiao, right? You, f- when when it's it's very like old school Marxist analysis, right? Where the only thing you have is your body. Yeah. That's how you make money. Like that's how you get yourself out of poverty. And I think it is very difficult for these guys who make a lot of money to be able to yeah. make that transition out. In, yeah. Especially with guys who don't feel like they fit into middle class society. They don't. They don't sort of know who to talk to. Who who, who to trust? Yeah. yeah. How do you know if you don't know? Mm-hmm. How do you know how to find a financial advisor? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking for one if you guys have any suggestions. <laughs> I, I think it's the same thing. You see a lot of athletes, like, a few years after they retire, they gain 100 pounds. Because they say, I don't know, like, I've been eating this way for years and years and burning it off in training and games, but I don't know how to turn that off. It's the same thing sort of with money with these guys where you're spending $20 bucks a year, but you're making $100 million per fight. Then how do you turn that off? Yeah, and it becomes really difficult when you have family members and financial people all sort of hanging on to, all dependent on you, as well. And it leads to sort of the cycle. That was one of the saddest parts of the film Going Broke was Bernie Kosar at the end. He was like, "The best part about filing for bankruptcy is people stop calling me." Yep. Mm. And I was because I remember Bernie was a beast, yeah. right? He's so good, and to see what happened to him. And to have him say, like, the moment of joy yeah. was actually going bankrupt. And wow. I was like, oh, that's 
terrible. Yeah, they all talk about how, like, family members start asking for money and what happens when they don't do this. It's yeah. this whole sort of network of pressures on them. It's not like just the dumb airplanes and, you know, gold-plated tigers or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, you know, family issues and things like that, which really cause all this conflict. Yeah, and all that stuff that we really don't pay attention to in the media when right. we're drawing these narratives about these players. Um, I believe we only have a couple minutes left, so with these final minutes, I think it will be fun to maybe uh, take a little lighter subject and speculate for a, se a second or two. And um, we could talk about kind of make predictions for athletes who are very much nearing retirement and what we think they may or may not do post-career. Um, a name I have for you, JP, you're welcome to take it or come up with your own, is Tom Brady. What do you think Tom Brady's story is going to be after he starts stops putting that helmet on? Man, I, I, I sort of... I think I'm 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 gonna see Tom Brady in an infomercial <laughs> at some point within the next five years. Oh, no. Some sort of nutritional supplement or something. The Brett wild. Like, Yeah, like I, he, man, he's kind of going there anyway with the the TB12 yeah. thing and all that, and that seems like an infomercial waiting to happen. <laughs> the like pseudoscience. Exactly. Fake doctor. Exactly. No. It's gonna have him, you know, some clips of him winning the Super Bowl <laughs> when he's like 40 and all that, and he's gonna be like, oh, like. You know, I mean, th that seems like a typical infomercial pitch, right? Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, and I hate to say that, but, yeah, it's an infomercial. Tom Brady is an infomercial waiting right. to happen. He'll be like a, a health guru. Yeah. Because he doesn't need the money, but he wants that to, like, validate his, you know, medical nonsense. Yeah. Or his longevity is kind of a part of his narrative, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have an extra name for us? Maybe to wrap up the show? Uh, Anyone I, you're I thinking about? I don't know about? anything sort of off the top of my head. Oh, uh, okay. Um, I have some <laughs> names on my sheet. Sure. Um Peyton Manning, already retired, I guess. Eli Manning, someone, right, who's kind of coming off. That's an interesting one. Because yeah. I think Peyton Manning has very much positioned himself as, like, a public sports intellectual, right? Yeah. This idea that he could walk you through, like, game tape or sort of take you to these different locations. So he does this, again, but long, he, but, long history. But even before that, right. he was on Saturday Live. He did those TV commercials with um, Justin Timberlake. Yeah. He was hilarious, he right? He's a super funny guy, but I think he's going to go more like the public intellectual route versus, like, the comedy Route. Eli's a really interesting case study because I don't think people particularly sort of had this investment in him that the way that they do with Peyton Manning. Yeah. I guess it'd be like a talking head on TV. Yeah. Fairly generic, fairly non controversial. Do something like New York sports, right? Yeah, totally. He's still beloved in the New York market. Yeah. But I feel like those types of guys, especially the ex New York Giants, can kind of make careers out of just right. signing helmets at events in the tri-state Well, he got area. in trouble for like selling fake game-used merchandise, I yeah. guess. So the, the thing about Eli is, like, you know, whenever I'm driving into New York, I listen to the fan, right? Mm -hmm. And those dudes are wild. And Eli's just not. Like, yeah. Eli's yeah. kind of boring. And it's like, the reason why you listen to New York sports talk radio is because, like, like these dudes are just exuding passion yes. and they're just ludicrously... Mike and the Mad Dog is exactly. the Exactly. They're yeah. ludicrous. And that's why you love New York sports radio. And Eli is just such a bad fit for well, that. Well, I was thinking like pregame shows, uh, right? Like taking over like Bill Cower. If he replaces Bill Cower, <laughs> would like anybody miss a beat there? Yeah. Things like that okay. where you don't have to be controversial. You just sort of give your opinion and then just sort of move on. What right? do you think of the Eli Manning and Marshawn Lynch show? <laughs> I'm like 50% <laughs> yeah, yeah. I liked I liked your earlier suggestions maybe um better. Uh but here's our here's my final question. What do your guys' ideal post retirement look like? <laughs> what does mine look yeah, like? Yeah, yeah. After you're you know you're done you're done teaching, like are you kind of like trying to isolate yourself on an island? Like what are what, what do Can you Can I what do you say think? 
take have a show with Marshawn Lynch? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I haven't given a thought about retirement. Oh Very man, fair. I'm be like walking my dog, yeah. like reading science fiction, and you know, actually, actually having time to watch like NBA and NFL games in their entirety. Yeah. Once I bad. retire. Watch an entire 162-game season of baseball. That would be the most retirement-based thing you could do. That's and, awesome. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> that's really just throwing in the <laughs> yeah, towel. That's a lot. <laughs> well, well, for now, we're all very, 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 very far away from actual retirement. So until then, we'll keep doing this show. But for now, we'll catch you next time. Run.